there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. Are you interested in learning more about human resources and what that field is all about? Then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has almost 20 years of experience working in all different capacities in human resources, which is a super dynamic field. But before I introduce you to Cyrilda Summers-McGee, the founder and CEO of Workplace Change, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive window into the episodes, the professions, the professionals, all of that, that we're going to be featuring that week. All you got to do is head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, caffeinated, naturally caffeinated, all of the above, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is the naturally caffeinated Cyrilda Summers-McGee, the founder and principal of Workplace Change. It's a human resources consultancy that Cyrilda created four years ago to guide, advise, and encourage the business world through internal as well as external growth and transition while incorporating diversity, equity, and inclusion also known as DEI, into human resources systems. Cyrilda has been an HR DEI innovator for well over 15 years, honing her ability to identify challenges and opportunities while teaching everyone how to be a better leader. She's inspired thousands to create, embrace, and mobilize lasting organizational change. And most recently, she was the Chief Human Resources Officer for the City of Portland, in Oregon, which happens to be one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. And she led a bureau of 84 professionals who supported a workforce of more than 10,000 people. She's also held leadership roles within the Portland Development Commission, the Oregon Department of Education, Kaiser Permanente, Partners in Diversity, and Reed College. Cyrilda believes in the power of an equitable and inclusive work environment because she knows that to be a healthy company, there must be a healthy culture. Cyrilda, welcome to Time for Coffee. How are you? I don't need to ask if you're caffeinated because you're always caffeinated and ready to go. That's right, Andrea. No, <laughs> I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. And I want to let our listeners know, Cyrilda, that one of the many, many reasons I wanted to interview you was that I read an editorial that you wrote, which was published in the Portland Business Journal on June 3rd. And we'll make sure to include a link to it in the show notes for this episode. But let me just quickly summarize the beginning and get to your main point about the workplace because it's super important. You wrote, I'm a black woman with a black husband, 10-year-old black son, and a five-year-old black daughter. The past 30 days have been traumatic for my family. On April 26th, a video was released of Ahmed Arbery, an unarmed black man who was being killed by a former cop and his son in February for basically running while black. 
On May 25th, Christian Cooper, a black bird watcher, asked Amy Cooper, who is a Caucasian dog lover, to please follow the rules and leash her dog. That led to her making a 911 call howling, there's an African-American man threatening my life. And that same day on May 25th, George Floyd was murdered by police for allegedly trying to use a counterfeit $20 bill. Sorilda wrote, these events are enraging, exhausting, heartbreaking reminders of the dangers my family and all Black families face every day. I am inspired to address the fact that acts of aggression and violence against Black people also carry over into the workplace. This internal darkness breathes on the job within those who fear others who don't look, act, or talk like them. How common is this internal darkness for Black Americans in the workforce? Oh, it's incredibly common. And it is common for all Black professionals, no matter what their title is. I have been in executive human resources roles for the past seven years where I'm the chief, maybe eight or nine, I don't even know, where I'm the chief people person inside the organization. And I've been at tables with other black execs around that table, all making well into the six figures. And they too are feeling the same traumas and at times abuse that entry level and blue collar black professionals experience in the job. It is omnipresent and it is an expectation that you grow to have as you move up the ranks. It is very present. And I'm keenly aware of it, not just because anecdotally, because I'm a black woman who's had a job. No, no, no. I'm HR. So when challenges present themselves, people will come to me, especially in the skin that I'm in. I'm a dark skinned black woman. They will seek me out as the first more times than not. I'm the first black head of human resources in the organization. And they're hopeful that maybe with my presence, they'll get a fair shake at being heard, being seen and the trauma to subside. So, no, it's very present, very present. Sorilda, as you know, the primary listeners of Time for Coffee are college students and young professionals. I know the last thing we want to do is scare them any more than they are already, right, about what it's like in the workplace. Having said that, what can you say to prepare them for the kinds of subtle racism that they should expect? I mean, the, the words to prepare them are not, are like the same words that I, that I will tell my children when they get ready to go into the workplace. And that is, don't react too aggressively because it's only going to reinforce the assumptions and stereotypes they have about you based on your skin color. Know your rights, know what the buzzwords are, right? So, you know, know what harassment looks like, know what discrimination looks like, follow the data, don't make assumptions, right? And then build your case for, you know, how you have been disproportionately negatively treated. Like you have to know the data. I've been in so many lawsuits and and so much litigation, so much in my career, right? People sue companies that I work for and I have to go in for employment practices and I have to go in and defend the company. And I, I listen to their stories. I'm hearing these black people say like, I was discriminated against. And then they have to prove it and they can't because they don't know what to look for. So and what so, should they look for? 
what you should be looking for are trends based on data, right? So if you're not getting jobs and you feel like you're being overlooked, you can't just say, I feel like I'm being overlooked. Follow the data, right? Like what's the applicant background who won out? Did they have more years experience than you or didn't they? If you feel like your boss is targeting you, pay attention to, are you the only person who's always late? Or are there other people who have been late? And did he treat them differently than you? Are you tracking their, I mean, you become like a, an, an investigator. You become like a police officer dang there in, in the workplace. But you have to be able to prove definitively that something unfair has happened to you, which is incredibly hard to prove and demonstrate. And that is why many of these organizations are allowed to maintain the status quo because the consequence, you can't prove it. So no consequence will come. And so therefore we have just reinforced some bad behavior to say like, okay, I treated this person the way I decided to treat them. I've never treated anyone without that color skin this way. However, you know, you can justify it in your mind, but with data, you can't justify it in your mind. That's the mirror that you place to people's faces. So I coach a lot of people on just how to prepare to approach human resources. This is why one of the reasons why I got into HR. HR is built to sustain the status quo in 99% of most companies. And so you've got to come in there understanding how HR functions, what they're looking for, and then how to advocate for yourself. And I just gave you a couple examples, but there's so many more that you need to be aware of. Just so many more. Could you give us an example of what you've experienced in the workplace? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I was going to say, I know that you wanted to start workplace change because of a toxic environment in particular that you had come out of. And I'm sure you've been in all kinds of toxic environments, but could you share an example of the kind of racism, discrimination that you experienced? Absolutely. So I took a job and I was the, the head of HR in the organization. I was hired by a person who transitioned in his role about eight months into the job. And he hired me. He knew who I was. He knew how I activated human resources in a very equitable way. And that's what he wanted. But he was replaced by someone who did not want that at all. They did not want diversity recruitment. They did not want policies that were built for trans folks and disabled people and black people. They didn't want any of those things. And He let me know that he demonstrated that to me pretty regularly, like the honeymoon phase wore off about kind of a month in when I would ask him questions about comments that he would make. And I would say, well, because my job in HR is to coach leaders on how they behave and engage with the workforce. And so that's what I would do with the executive team. And I would ask him questions and he felt very challenged and threatened, which I definitely dialed it back in order to be more palatable, like give him feedback in a more palatable way, you know, becoming a shell of myself. But he he made my life very challenging. He would have meetings and just accidentally not invite me. He would cancel our one on ones. I was the only executive he wouldn't meet with. I was the only executive of color in the organization. There was a CFO who was working there and he had a tendency of yelling at people. Right. Like he would get fired up and he would just like, you better not. And you're not going to yell at me. I don't care who you're from where you're from, who you are, you're not going to yell at me. So I remember sitting in his office, I was informing him that something happened with his workforce and he had to kind of change it. He started yelling at me and I said, I want you to pause. Don't ever yell at me. Like you don't have permission to yell at me. I am your peer and I am human resources. So get your life. And he went to the head of the organization who already kind of had his crosshairs pointed at me and told him that I threatened him. (laughs) 
this white man goes to another white man and says that Cyrilda, you know, black Cyrilda, she was very aggressive and she threatened me and I just don't feel safe. And they investigated me, turned my life upside down. It was a disaster. Now I know all the rules and the way to play the game. So I played the game very smartly and very wisely. And I whistle blew and let them know that I had been tracking what had been happening and all the micro and macro aggressions and all of the inconsistencies and statements that he'd made about black people and statements he'd made about Indian people. And so I I moved up the chain to another outlet. And so I protected myself. I became untouchable, but my life inside the organization was untenable. It was horrible every single day that I arrived. And he was wreaking havoc, not just on me, but on most of the workforce. And they were running to me to shield them. Like, what do I do? You know, I don't think I've done anything wrong, but this is happening to me. And I just was not only was I personally being traumatized, I was trying to coach people through their trauma that they were enduring. And I was just like them with really no outlet to go to because who is HR's HR, you know, besides an attorney. And so that it was during that moment that I just was like, I got, there's got to be another way. Like the, I just cannot pray that I don't get another abusive and tyrannical boss and just keep opening myself up to this kind of treatment is, is wreaking havoc on my health. You know, I'm a different kind of person for my babies. I'm unhappy. I'm sad. I cry. All these things were happening and I'm a pretty tough cookie. And so that's when I wrote my book and I launched my company. But it was a very it was the worst work environment I have ever experienced. It was extreme. I've definitely had things that were really difficult to endure, but I was able to kind of get to the other side of it. With this one, I just had to quit and find another job. And they protected him, right? He was protected until he wasn't protected because a lawsuit came forward that was enormous. And then they fired him because they thought they were going to get a class action suit because there were so many people who were angry. Mm. So yeah, that's the story. Well, thank you for sharing that. I want to ask you about workplace change in just a minute. But before I do, because your company is there to kind of guide human resources and executives in the workplace around diversity, inclusion, equity, all of the above, could you share with our young listeners, maybe even get them excited about how dynamic human resources as a field is right now? This actually is a field that's hiring, that's got jobs and and whatnot? For sure. I mean, so let's just start with COVID. COVID hit and people had to go virtual. Most companies in America were not virtual, especially government entities and healthcare entities. They were not virtual. They were in-person organizations and they had rules and policies to ensure that people felt like they did not feel like they could be virtual. They needed to be present. So HR was the responsible entity inside nearly every company in the country to move organizations to being virtual. And then people had to do layoffs and they had to do furloughs. And that's hard. That's really hard work. But the entity that was determining who was going to be furloughed and how much money that they have to pay for staffing and where should the staff be located based on demand for the company, that all came through human resources. And then the paperwork and all the things to make sure organizations were compliant with laws and policies and rules and insurance, that all came through human resources. So HR has been busy for three months, right? Like super busy. Then we get the civil unrest. Rightly so, couldn't have happened faster. It's unfortunate that people had to die in order to get people's attention about inequities and disparities in the world, um, and in America in particular. But we've got the attention right now. But the critique is now coming into the workplace, right? Like that's why I wrote the article. There are a whole lot of 
HR pros who are not HR pros, but just like black professionals who are saying there are parallels. We're talking to each other and we're talking about the parallels. But then HR's responsibility is to to modify those policies. It's HR's responsibility to find that minority historically underrepresented talent and get them inside the organization and pay them fairly. It's HR's responsibility to see if your pay practices are equitable and consistent and transparent and fair and market-based. This is all HR. It's HR's responsibility to figure out if the data proves that you are disproportionately over-policing people in the workplace, meaning they're getting more investigations, they're getting more sanctions leveled against them, they're getting more discipline. Who's getting this discipline? Are you even tracking where it's happening? That is all human resources. Workplace change is going to happen through and by human resources and leaders. And it won't happen with leaders alone. It will require human resources to bring them the data and then to hold them accountable for changing. So, yes, we're hiring. Workplace change is hiring or the field is hiring? The field is hiring. Workplace change just, you know, just got out of a COVID. So we didn't have to do any layoffs, but we're trying to restock the coffers here. Um, so make sure we can continue to meet payroll for the next, you know, 18 months. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were telling me before we started interviewing that your phone is ringing off the hook. Uh, and I, I thank God every day that we have been priming the pump so that people understand what we do and they look to us as a resource. Workplace change was created for this moment in time. So tell us more about it. Workplace Change is a human resources firm, as you said, but we integrate diversity, equity, and inclusion tenants throughout all traditional human resources functions. And it's built on the premise that you will not establish an equitable workplace without HR evolving. Full stop. If HR continues business as usual with payment practice and employment practices, you won't get diversity, you won't have equity, you won't get parity or consistency. And again, I have grown up in the industry, so I understand the challenges that plague human resources. We're oftentimes underfunded and we're blamed for every mishap. Oh, I'd let you do this if HR said yes, but HR said no. And it's like, you didn't even want to promote that person. So why are you saying HR said no? So HR is kind of always the stepchild in in most organizations. And so when outsiders come in and they level critiques of like, this is all HR's problem, it falls on deaf ears because we're always blamed for everything. But when HR critiques HR and we say, we can do better and I can show you how to do better. It makes an impact. It makes a splash. And that's what workplace change is all about. It's about coming and helping to bring human resources to the 22nd century, right? Creating policies and guidance and governance structures to support the millennial who boomers think are entitled douchebags, right? And to say like, no, 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 they're not entitled. They just have different expectations. They don't expect to work for you for 45 years and earn a watch. They expect you to treat them right for the first three years that they're with you, or maybe the 18 months that they're with you and they're going to work their butts off for you. Like that's HR's work. And HR has to be the catalyst for those kinds of conversations and policy systems changes. That's what our company does. That's what my company does. Do you think that HR is empowered to make those decisions? Sure. No. Yes. Both. (laughs) The only reason I ask that is that I know that there have been other posts out there in social media. I've seen you featuring some by, there was one woman in particular who was calling out Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Amazon, all these companies saying, hey, great, we really appreciate the the black box. Mm -hmm. But You've only got one black person in the C-suite and guess what his or her position is? Diversity. Yeah, exactly. And that 
this is what you're talking about when you say there's institutionalized racism. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are only certain jobs that they want black people to have. I can't tell you how many people wanted me out of human resources. I've had more people saying that I shouldn't be in human resources than those who who said that I should be. She's disruptive. She's creating change. We don't want change. We want, you know, Megan back. You know, Megan was great. Find a Megan equivalent. And it's like, nope, I'm here and we need change. HR has a great deal of power. But you know what? What is power in the hands of people who don't know what to do with it? And I think that a lot of human resources people, not all, not even most, but many, 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 many HR pros get these jobs and they treat the jobs as though they're administrative support representatives. They're planning pizza parties and birthday celebrations and Black History Month, you know, fish fries. And what the hell is that? I tell folks like, You have to step into the power that is bestowed within human resources. And I'm unapologetic in stepping into the power of HR. I know the impact it can have when wielded properly. And so there are some people who will claim they don't have the power because they don't want to do it. It's an excuse. It's like, oh, nobody's going to let me. No, you didn't go advocate for it. And there are other people who don't even know what to to do. What does it mean to really be a, a human resources leader versus a transactional payroll benefits administrator? And so that's what I would say. I believe HR is incredibly powerful. There are so many powerful human resources pros out there in a variety of disciplines. We have to step into the power and then wield it properly for change. Sorelda, I'd like to flash back really quickly to when you were in college. You got your undergrad degree in biology and behavioral science at Grand Valley State University. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? What? No, absolutely not. Well, I knew I was going to be a biology teacher and I knew that I liked the study of human beings. And so that's why the like a biology degree and a psychology degree was way too intense. So I'm like, I can get behavioral science and it's like psychology adjacent. It's a hybrid of both sociology and psychology, which I really loved and like anthropology. And so that's why I got the behavioral science degree paired with the biology degree because biology is just straight up hard science, right? So I'm taking stats and I'm taking physics and I'm taking chemistry all day long. But I needed to understand the human condition as well. I knew I I wanted to be a biology teacher because my biology teacher was one of the few people who saw my black skin and believed that I could be a scientist. And so I'm like, I didn't want to let him down. So I was going to become a scientist and be just like him for kids. I ain't got the temperament for kids, Andrea. Um, You're a mom. (laughs) My kids, yes, because I can tell them to sit down and don't you do it again. But other people's kids, man, these, these people had problems. And so I'm just like, no, 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 no. But then after that, I didn't know what I was going to do. So definitely I've had career changes. I was a tutor. I was a math and science tutor my entire college career. And I worked for like a counselor, like a university counselor for four years. Grand Valley State University program recruiter. Exactly. Right. So not only did I go out and find minority students, I also tutored them in math and science so that they would be eligible to go from community college into Grand Valley State. It was the coolest job on earth. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to be a biology teacher. Hey, counselor, how can I do this job I'm doing right now or a job like yours for the rest of my life? Like, I want to do that. I don't, I don't want to do this. And she said, go get a master's degree in higher education administration and then go and become an administrator inside universities. And I said, you got it on it. And I applied for colleges that day, got an assistantship, learned what it meant to be a college administrator had a blast doing it and said, I'm going to be a dean of students. I'm a person who I need to have a blueprint. I need to have a design 
for the future and a goal. If I don't have a goal, I, I feel very lost. And so I just Googled deans of students, looked at their resumes, their journey. And I said, paint by numbers. I'm going to get all those jobs. <laughs> that was so clever. <laughs> and actually, let me summarize real fast here where you went, because you applied, you got into Ball State, you got your master's of education. While I think you were there, you were a financial aid phone counselor at Michigan yeah. State University. So that was sort of, you were paying the bills there. You were also an admissions graduate assistant while you were at Ball State. Then you became an interim director of orientation, or maybe it was a multicultural center program coordinator, and then interim director of orientation at Reed College. You eventually became the assistant dean of residence mm -hmm. life at Reed College. You then went to work for the Greater Portland Chamber of Commerce as executive director, partners in diversity, then Kaiser Permanente, then the Oregon Department of education, then prosper. But I think what's so interesting, tell me if I got this right, Srilda. So your job that you got to help pay the bills while you were in college, studying to get your BS in biology right. and behavioral science, ended up sparking your interest that became your professional drive, that became the career that you wanted to go into. Absolutely. It was my first career that I had. So it was really by chance. I wouldn't say it was by chance. It was me sticking with what I was good at and not questioning it. People will try to tell you what you're supposed to do and you know what course to follow. My approach in life has been, if you double down on what you're good at, I'm good with people and I'm good with numbers and science. That's what I'm going to do. And that's still what I do. NHR. It's numbers and metrics and people, right? When I was in higher education, it was numbers. I worked for financial aid. I had to, I worked in all the revenue generating functions in higher education. Like that was the path to becoming a dean of students. Orientation, admissions, athletic department, financial aid, right? Like I literally charted a course for, but it was always people and numbers. My recommendation for any professional, any human being, no matter what your age is, it's never too late to, Follow your gifts. We all have gifts. Follow the gifts you have and you will find great success. Amazing advice. I have two final questions for you. If you could share a time, Sorilda, you've already mentioned one, in your professional life when you struggled, maybe you even failed at something or got fired. And I say that not because I want to cast a light on something that you would be embarrassed about. I want to let you know I was fired twice in my 40s and I believe in my heart those were gifts to me. Mm -hmm. I see it as thank goodness I was fired because I hadn't been happy in those roles and it forced me to move in a different direction. That's but right. the most important thing here, Sorolda, is to really model for our young listeners that the times you fall down does not mean game over. It means you hit a road bump the way we all have now with the coronavirus. And we're all trying to figure out our way forward with that. But whatever the case may be, and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. 
Yeah. Road bump. I, you know, I saw this. You gave me a list of questions and I saw this on there and I was like, God, which road bump <laughs> would I like to highlight? I've only been fired one time in my life and it was a learning of just like, Either you're going to either you want the job, or you don't want the job. Right. So don't go in and have to do the job. It's bad for everybody involved. But that wasn't my biggest aha moment. I would definitely say aha moments for me have been being places where I was mistreated for far too long. Right. And I, I say this. Everyone has a choice. Even as a young professional, you have a choice whether you stay or you go. And sometimes for me, growing up where I grew up, I would tell myself that, you know, you just have to be strong. You have to power through and it's always hard and it won't always be great. And, you know, you just stick it out. Don't be a punk. Don't be soft. Like these are the kind of things that I would tell myself based on the environment that I came from. You know what? It wasn't worth it. The amount of sleepless nights and the amount of psychological and spiritual distress that I experienced, especially in the later years, there were no trophies that I got after I endured horrible mistreatment for years and years before I decided, okay, I'm going to transition to this next. It's it's appropriate for me to transition now. I would definitely say my biggest learnings were you don't have to be in a toxic environment in order to prove your value. You're just valuable because of who you are. That's my life lesson. That's that's the lesson that I I learned several times. And I kept getting myself having having moments where you don't just quit just because there's a bad day. But when you got like 190 bad, horrible days. Mm. Like, why, why are you doing this to yourself? What, yeah. what, are you, what, are you, what is the prize on the end, other side of this very negative rainbow? And so those are the, the life lessons that I learned. Like, it probably took years off of my life. You know, I've had several jobs. You, you, you listed many of them. But some of those universities were awful to Black people. I mean, they treated you like garbage. And it made me a better HR professional. It happened. Everything happens for a reason. I'm far better in my career as a result of having endured those things, but it's lessons learned. Yeah. You should have gotten out sooner. I should have. Thank you for sharing that. Final question. Yes, ma'am. If you could go back to Grand Valley State and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Sarilda, what advice would you give yourself? Have fun. I was the most intense 16-year-old, the most intense 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old. I was very aggressively trying to get out of poverty. And I believed that, you know, I was never the most brilliant person in any of my science classes, but I outworked everybody, right? You guys are going out celebrating and having a good time. I'm going to run routes around you. And now I have two children and I own a business. And I think about like, I didn't frolic nearly enough when I didn't have the kinds of responsibilities that I have right now. Life comes at you quickly and you only get one shot at this thing. And so while you have grace and you have maybe some support systems and family, go to that party, like have that, that late night out every once in a while. Like this is your moment to enjoy life a bit because very soon you're going to be living for other things that require you to live for them, especially if you plan to have a family and especially if you plan to be an executive, which those companies are going to take all you got to give. So live your life a bit. That's what I would tell younger Cyrilda. Like just, just have a little bit more fun, especially while you have that, that really solid, strong body and you're healthy and you, you know, (laughs) these things are amazing. 
amazing luxuries that you never recognize how valuable they are until they kind of start to to go away a bit. <laughs> well, I can't imagine you with the energy that a 19 or 20 year old would have, Zerelda, because holy cow, you are a force of nature. I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. The work you are doing at Workplace Change is so vital. I know your company is going to continue to grow and become even more successful. And boy, do we need it. Thank you so much, Andrea, again, for having me on your show today. I appreciate you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.